evening, morning, or afternoon. My name is Jake Williams. This is Wooden Teeth. I'm glad you're with us. Today on the pod, we have a guy named Scott Wasserman. Scott is a friend of mine, and this is the first edition of a new type of episode we're gonna do here on Wooden Teeth that we're calling News with Friends. In these episodes, we kind of process current events with friends of the pod, uh, with a public policy and public health perspective. And we also tailor the conversation to whatever area of expertise our guests represent. In this case, Scott knows a lot about economic mobility. That's what he and his team promote at the Bell Policy Center. That's the organization that he serves as president of. And so we talk about that and also teacher strikes. Scott used to be in the labor movement, so he knows a thing or two about that topic as well. And so we talk about how we're seeing more strikes these days among teachers, uh, possibly including here in Colorado, recently in LA and in many states across the nation last year. We talk about John Hickenlooper and a couple other Coloradans who uh, look like they may run for president. And we have some laughs, I think. That's what I remember, we had some laughs. And a bunch of background noise. You hear that too. But overall, it's pretty good. So let's get to it. Scott Wasserman and me talking about all sorts of stuff on our first News with Friends edition. Scott Wasserman, welcome to Wooden Teeth. Thank you very much, Jake. It's great to be here. Okay, so this is the first News with Friends edition of the podcast, which means we're going to process some current events. But before we get to said processing, we should probably process who you are. So who are you, Scott Wasserman? I am, um, I always professionally, I'm the president of an organization called the Bell Policy Center. Uh, it's an organization, it's a non nonpartisan nonprofit, uh, totally focused on the issue of economic mobility here in the state of Colorado. We've been around since 2000, um, and we are a research and advocacy organization. Uh, we do original research. Uh, we provide insights and analysis to policymakers, and occasionally uh, we get involved in campaigns. And you've done a lot of things in the past that are relevant to current events today. We're going to get into that as we get into the discussion, but I'm going to start with Governor John Hickenlooper, who just finished his second term in office. And rumor has it that, uh, actually not rumor, he's told people that he's looking at running for president and he's actually one of three uh, people from Colorado who may be running for president. There's him, there's Senator Michael Bennett, who had um, a well-covered um, monologue uh, on the Senate floor in reaction to Ted Cruz's- it was, it was a barn burner. It was. I wouldn't call that a monologue. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it was- uh, frankly, it was slightly out of character for him. Um, he's usually a bit more reserved and friendly to the other side of the aisle. But the third potential candidate uh, from Colorado that may be running for president is uh, Ken Salazar, uh, former U.S. Senator and Secretary of the Interior. So what are your thoughts on all these Coloradans um, potentially running for president? First, why is it a coincidence that there are so many? What's going on? So, okay, what I think is really, I mean, so it's a great thing that we have so many people from Colorado who want to now play on the national on the national stage. Um, I, and I think one of the reasons that you have so many people from Colorado is that for so long, Colorado has been the quintessential purple state, uh, that Colorado has in some way 
been it's a, been a battleground state. Uh, it's a microcosm of American politics. You've got red, you've got blue, you've got people in the middle. We're a third independent. We're a third uh, Democrat. We're a third Republican. And so I think that Colorado has had a really uh, has had a, had a really big footprint on American politics for a really long time. Um, but I think it's precisely for those reasons that a candidate coming from Colorado is going to have a hard time getting through a Democratic primary, right? Because the brand of centrism is something that we have for a long time cherished here in the state of Colorado. Um, it's Ken Salazar's brand. That's John Hickenlooper's brand. I think up until recently, that's been Michael Bennett's brand. And so the challenge that any of these candidates is going to have, and it's not that I don't think any of them are able, unable to overcome it, is how do you move past this sort of cherished centrism that we have cultivated here in Colorado onto a national scene where there's just more, the issues are more extreme. Uh, there's more of an appetite for, for radical ideas. And I think at least in the in the primaries that we're going to see, I think there's going to, especially on the Democratic side, I think there's going to be a lot less tolerance for pulling punches, for finding the center line at a time of income inequality, at a time when we really need to deal with uh, climate change. So these candidates are going to have to figure out how to translate that centrist experience in Colorado, which was important to win here, to a national stage in a different political era. Do you think moderate Democrats can still win statewide in Colorado and what do you think about um, the chances of a moderate Democrat in a Democratic presidential primary? I mean, here in Colorado, we just elected, uh, I would say, a, a fairly progressive governor and uh, Governor Jared Polis, um, an openly gay man from Boulder, uh, also Jewish, and really no one seemed to care. <laughs> to our credit, um, as Coloradans and as Americans, no one seemed to really care that much. Um, what does Jared's election say about Colorado? Um, is is his brand of politics notable, or is it? Are there other reasons why you think he won? I mean, I guess you gotta like you gotta you gotta splice out. What do you mean by moderate, right? I mean, what, some of the things that you just raised are you know things that belong in the cultural conversation, you know, identity politics and is is a is America or is Colorado ready for a gay Jewish governor. And I think that on that's a whole different set of issues um and apparently we are, right? And so but then when we look at another area of political conversation which is around economic policy around climate change, you know, yeah, I think he's got a pretty moderate style, but I actually think that he's you know, he he put markers down on pretty bold political issues. So to me, like there's a difference between a centrist style and a moderate style um, versus centrist or moderate policies. And I think maybe we should distinguish between the two of them because you could be, I mean, one could argue that maybe Bernie Sanders's challenge was that he had all these great ideas, um, but that he was too radical in the delivery, right? I think, you know, and that's why just some of the exposure that I've gotten to Senator Bennett um, as of late. I mean, this is somebody who is spending some time trying to understand income inequality and is really talking about these issues. And if he can talk about radical ideas in a moderate way, maybe that's a recipe for success. So I think we have to just separate out moderate style and behavior in politics versus um, you know moderate ideas uh, and kowtowing to the middle. Well, let's talk about that substance, the, the actual issues. 
you know, the things that Bernie was saying back in 2016 aren't as easily classified as radical anymore. It would seem, you know, when it comes to healthcare, Medicare for all was, um, you know, a central plank in this platform. And I would say that for any Democrat running for president this cycle, if you're not for Medicare for all, then you at minimum must be for Medicare for more or else you'd be kind of laughed out of the room. That's a, that's a market shift. Even you know, going back here to Colorado, um, I would say Governor Polis out of the gate seems like a different type of Democrat than uh, Governor Hickenlooper was um, when it comes to healthcare already we're looking at potentially passing a public option um, for Coloradans. It'd be the first in the country. Um, climate change is something he's definitely more um, progressive on than John Higginlober is. I guess, what is this going to mean uh, for the country? Is this is this a flash in the pan, or is there something bigger going on here, both in Colorado and nationally, that we need to be paying uh, attention to? Yeah, I mean, the issues have gotten much more urgent than they were. I mean, like when I talk about John, so I worked for John Hickenlooper between 2013 and 2016. I was uh, Joe Garcia's chief of staff, and then later on, I was John Hickenlooper's deputy chief of staff. And the time period that John Hickenlooper was governor in Colorado was a very different time period than today, right? His administration and his policies were designed to get us out of the Great Recession, to recover the economy, to add jobs, and to just sort of grow the wealth of the state, right? And I think he, he achieved that, right? But then the Colorado that Jared Polis has inherited is one of huge inequalities, right? We are a wealthy state. We're the 11th most wealthy state in the country, yet we're 42nd in education spending, right? And so I think he inherits not an economy that needs to grow, um, but rather an economy that needs to even out where more people have to feel you know, that prosperity. I think the same could be said for America, right? Is that America is in, you know, we've, we recovered from the Great Recession more unequal than we were uh, than when we got into it. And so the issues of inequality and climate change are more urgent than ever. And it requires, it requires more urgent solutions. And it's not 15 years ago. You know, we could dabble in, well, let's just do things slowly. We could dabble in gradualism when these problems were less urgent. But, you know, perhaps because gradualism failed, these problems are now more urgent than they ever have been before, and it requires urgent solutions. Now, how you package and how you market those urgent solutions, you know, that's the trick. That's the magic. And I think we just shouldn't confuse bombastic rhetoric and bombastic policy, right? Like how you deliver the message is just as important as the policy. Well, do you think when it comes to, for example, Medicare for all, there's a way to talk about that issue in a way that doesn't seem bombastic? I mean, what would I mean? What would it be? I guess it strikes me. <clears throat> you know, we've we've talked before about issues like this, and um, it seems like there is a really common sense way to talk about these things. Like, why wouldn't we make so, sure? That, okay, yeah. so the innovation. Okay, so so the innovation with Medicare for all is that it's Medicare for all, not single payer, right? That if you look at the way we talked about universal health care. Uh, back when you and I were working on healthcare reform in like 1905 or whatever mm, yeah, year yeah, it was, right? Um, right, like we we didn't call it Medicare for all. Like we weren't actually offering like necessarily a practical policy path to getting there. Um, and so you had this sort of single payer crowd, but it was all very pie in the sky. It was like, well, why can't we just have what Europe has? But the great innovation, I think, is that they started talking about Medicare for all. In other words, we, we're, we're giving you 
a very practical understanding of how we're going to deliver this policy. So it's not pie in the sky. So again, bold, bold, radical idea repackaged so that Americans are like, oh yeah, Medicare, right? I, I get Medicare. Everyone understands Medicare. Everyone wants to be a part of Medicare. All right. So I'm going to ask you a hacky question to kind of wrap up this segment that you probably won't answer. Of the three Coloradans I mentioned who um, may run for president, Hickenlooper, um, Salazar, Bennett, who do you think will get the most traction? The candidate who speaks uh, to the issues. As uh, as another cart rolls by, <laughs> didn't didn't uh, it didn't blank out your your dodge? We all heard your dodge. I hear it loud and clear in my headphones. I'm not dodging. Seriously, <laughs> like the first the first one of those three candidates that speaks to the most relevant issues in American politics, um, and that that's why I get back to this issue of like Colorado centrism, right? Like. Like they have got to stop playing it safe. Like the candidates who play it safe in twenty in the twenty twenty cycle are going to be penalized, and the candidates who speak truth to power, and the candidates who are bold and and we were just talking earlier before we we got all set up. Like candidates who are authentic, I think are the ones. If if there's like any silver lining to the Trump era, it's that maybe maybe our politicians will get more authentic. Moving on from uh, presidential election politics for the moment, let's talk about something else that's been really prominent in the news, and that's the government shutdown. By the time this airs, hopefully the shutdown's over. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but this has now become uh, the longest government shutdown in American history. It's been running since December, and it's it's been long, not just in actual length, but it has a different, I would say, feel to it in that previous shutdowns that we've been through, there was kind of a sense that the end was near and it was just a matter of time. Um, but this one seems intractable um, until perhaps re you know recent days here when you're starting to see um, the FAA um, declaring uh, delays and cancellations because of a shortage of air traffic controllers. That, that might be the breaking point. But why, why do you think this shutdown seems, if you agree, seems different than previous ones. Well, for one thing, it was longer than all the other ones, right? So like you mentioned, like this was, we saw, th this is unbelievable that we've had a government shutdown for more than a month. Uh, and we've had federal workers who have had to go through, um, if it doesn't shut down today, uh, the shutdown doesn't end today, they've had, they've had to go without pay for two pay periods, right? So I think Americans were never exposed to this kind of um, economic fragility in the context of, of, of a federal government shutdown. And I, and I think that this revealed, this wasn't just, I think that like this kind of revealed more than just the plight of federal workers. I think that I've been amazed watching the coverage of this, just how this has exposed uh, a bigger conversation about just how financially exposed most Americans are. Like who among us could really go uh, one pay period without a paycheck that that the you know sixty percent of Americans can't afford a four hundred dollar unexpected cost right so I think like this this government shutdown not only was the longest one ever um, and also I mean w w we should add was completely based around 
uh, a completely uh, like a complete miscalculation on the part of the president. We've had federal shutdowns before where the parties were close and where they played a game of chicken that one that the parties knew somebody was going to blank. But in this in this particular shutdown, we saw a president who was so reckless, who understood from the outset that the parties weren't close, but chose to do it anyway. So I don't think we've ever had a shutdown with a president who just didn't care about the American public or American safety. Right. So I think that's also I think that's what freaked us out is like, how does this end? Who starts a game of chicken when you know that the other party isn't going to turn off whatever you do in a game of chicken? Right. So I think it's the it's the it's the irrationality of the president in charge during the shutdown. It's the financial fragility that was exposed during the shutdown and how it really spoke to most Americans because they saw themselves in their shoes. Um, And then and then lastly, um, you know, even if the shutdown ends today, they're going to open up the government for three more weeks. How do we know we'll not be in that situation three weeks from now? Yeah, this seems like the ultimate test of what seems to be the primary strategy of the president, which is a pure base strategy. Not only, as you mentioned, he seems to be relatively indifferent to the human impact of the shutdown, but polling shows that uh, the public clearly blames him, not congressional Democrats, for it. You've seen um, a marked dip in his approval rating, um, even among Republicans, because of it. And yet he, to this point, as we're recording now, hasn't shown too much sign of budging. And so that leads me to an, another diagnosis that has been put out there by some, which is if he caves on this, some say, um, this being the wall, that it's effectively the end of his presidency. What do you think about that diagnosis? I mean, his presidency should have never begun in the first place. Um, no, I mean, I, yeah, like I think it goes back to during during the campaign, there was this whole conversation about, well, don't take him literally, take him figuratively. The wall is not like a real proposal. It's a symbol. And and so but but I think like his his hardcore base took him very literally. And and I think to me, it's so interesting that he allowed himself to get boxed into a literal interpretation of this wall. Um, he had, and so, you know, I think he played with, with a strange fire, right? And so he played with a base that took him literally and that expected him to do this. And it put him in a completely uh, irrational position um, where he was trying to actually, Michael Bennett, going back to Michael Bennett, just put it so beautifully yesterday where he talked about how ludicrous it was that they, that the that, that the president was keeping the government shut down because he couldn't keep a promise that he made um, and that Americans didn't even want him to keep, except for a 30% base. And I just saw right before we recorded this, Ann, Ann Coulter uh, did a tweet that said, you know, you know, congratulations, like Herbert, you know, Walker Bush is no longer the wimpiest president in America. It's it's Donald Trump. So you know, I think he, he's getting what he deserved, right? He played with 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 a very radical, you know, marginal base who are taking him literally. And and now, you know, he's going to have to suffer the consequences of that. Do you think that Democrats in Congress should treat this as an opportunity to get something they wouldn't otherwise? Or do you think this is an opportunity to stand up for what's right and not have the uh, wall be built? I think I think Nancy Pelosi has been so smart in, in not trying to trade horses here, that, that this was not a situation in which Democrats should get something they want. It was, a, it was an opportunity to stand up to a bully uh, and say that these kinds of politics are not acceptable and you can't leverage American lives like this. Going back in time to another professional stop of yours, which was 
in labor. Um, you worked um, both for SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, and you also um, ran a public employees union out here in Colorado called Colorado Winds. And it, how that's relevant to some stuff that's going on today is that there are a lot of strikes, um, specifically among teachers. Um, beginning in places where you wouldn't normally expect, like last year, there were strikes in West Virginia and Oklahoma and Arizona, and they were um, successful by and large in terms of uh, teachers getting uh, concessions that they were looking for. This year, we've seen um, a strike in Los Angeles and we're um, on the precipice, it seems, of one here in Denver. What what's going on? Why what what is with this? Uh, what what is with these occurrences? Well, I think that we've neglected we've neglected labor and we've neglected work for too long in this economy. I mean, I think like one of the economic headlines today is that wages, while just starting to pick up, especially in places like here in Colorado, have not really recovered from where they were uh, just prior to the Great Recession. So I think that we have seen economic growth, quote unquote, without um, corresponding increases in wages and benefits. And we've also seen costs go up. And, and that, that's the story that we've been talking about and telling at the Bell Policy Center. And one of the reasons why our middle class is shrinking and one of the reasons why wages are going down is because you don't have unions playing that systemic role that they play in the economy to lift up wages and to push back and negotiate a fair deal for American workers. Um, so unions are messy. Uh, nobody wants one in their backyard, but they sure as heck want one in their neighborhood. And so I think for the first time in a long time, we're seeing the union movement really flex its muscle and the public's with them. Um, you know, and I, but I also think it's symptomatic of something else. I mean, it's no, it's no coincidence to me that a lot of this is happening with the, with the public labor unions, right? And that's a total symptom of public divestment, right? We have been shrinking the amount of money that we're spending on public services, like education, like higher education, right? And it's been uh, uh, crimping wages uh, for public workers. And so we've been leveraging all of our public systems while we do this. And I think people are fed up. So I think teachers are fed up. Um, I think that parents are fed up. Um, and so that's why I think we're seeing this now. And I think it's exactly at the right time. Yeah, I feel like these strikes and some of the uh, the stats and anecdotes that you just communicated help bridge the disconnect that seems to exist between the headlines in the news and the headlines are, you know, um, on the uh, the unemployment rate, which is pretty low, and the stock market, which despite volatility is pretty high, growth, which is doing pretty well. But you pop the hood on that, and you see that people are discontented. Uh, and uh, they're not earning what they need to, to succeed. And um, how can we do a better job of measuring and communicating how we're doing as a nation? So I think, I think you just hit the nail on the head, right? So when, when the average American thinks about the economy and they see a picture of the economy, I mean, obviously they reflect on their own personal experience, right? But then they think about the things that they hear headlines about. So what are the headlines you hear when you get in your car and you turn on the news? Um, you hear about gross domestic product, you hear about growth, you hear about unemployment, right? Um, we have the media shares some responsibility here where they have to start talking about other indicators of economic sustainability, right? So like, let's talk about uh, what's going on with the middle class. Let's talk about 
equity gaps, right? Let's talk about what's, you know, it drives me crazy. Like here in Colorado, we constantly get like reports on, we added this many jobs. Well, what kind of jobs? Were those low wage jobs? Were those high paying jobs? Were those quality jobs? Um, it's not enough to talk about unemployment. Let's talk about underemployment. How many jobs is a person having to work in order to afford housing? And I think just so rarely does the media cover this. And if they do cover it, it's like in a special expose or a special report but like not nearly as frequently as they do the blue chip indicators that we've gotten so used to, you know, understanding. And, you know, and then there's like a whole conversation about whether or not gross domestic product, you know, if somebody sells like more cigarettes, that goes into the gross domestic product, right? And so by that measure, our economy is doing re really well, but we're selling more cigarettes. Does Healthier Colorado think that's a good idea? No, no, we do not. Yeah. So, so you know, and I should credit Nick Hanauer just had a great podcast where he talked all about gross domestic product and what a what a faulty measure it is, right? So here in Colorado, like what, what I've proposed is let's have a middle-class dashboard where we actually look at the cost of childcare and what's happening with that, where we talk about the cost of higher education, where we talk about you know degree attainment and how many people have a kind of degree that's gonna get them a better paying job. So if we use that as a dashboard, right? As opposed to gross domestic product and, and you know what the stock market's doing, I mean, you don't even talk about that. How many people are even invested in the stock market and yet people are, hey, the stock market went up. The economy must be great. Well, how much of your money's invested in that, right? I mean, 8% of Americans are, are, are really benefiting when the stock market goes up. Another thing that I found curious along these lines is back when Obama was president, there was a narrative, yes, about the um, recovery and how uh, some of these same headline measures were going up. There was, um, you know, an un essentially uninterrupted um, expansion um, in jobs, there is an essentially uninterrupted um, uh, raising uh, of the Dow. But every story, it seemed like every every broad story about the economy would cite progress on the recovery, but would also say that. But not everybody's feeling, you know, the, the same sort of positive effects. Fast forward to this administration. I, you know, I I'm trying my best to not to not. Um, to not uh, 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 have bias here, but it really seems that from what I read and consume, that same narrative is not there. Am I, do you perceive the same thing? And if so, why do you think that is? What do you mean? Like the narrative from who? From, uh, I'd say even mainstream media. You know, like I, I would read stories in the, in the New York Times and be like, yes, all these, all these things are, are happening that are improving the economy, but there are uh, many Americans who aren't feeling the right. upward effects of, of this wind. Whereas today, again, same trends, stock market by and large has been doing better. Uh, uh, the unemployment rate, again, still low, but there's, I would say, less prominent talk about the people who are missing out on the positive effects of the economy. No, I mean, I, I, mean, I do feel like, I guess I disagree. I mean, I feel like I feel like that's the story about the economy that I feel like we're hearing more and more is that is that like just think about like right now another item in the news, uh, Davos, right? I mean, Davos is this place for 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 your listeners that don't know. It's in Switzerland, right? And every single year, the elite of the elites congregate on you know some snowy peak in the middle of Switzerland to have an exclusive conversation about how to solve the world's problems, right? Um, and it's kind of an obnoxious event. Um, and for the first time, uh, there were world leaders who just knew not to show up, that the moment is wrong. I think people are sensing there's this global populism 
there's this resentment of the elite. And so I do think there's more sensitivity and more understanding than ever of inequality and the fact that too many people are not sharing in the in the in the overall growth gains going on in the world. And I think about, you know, I mean, what I mean, really, like, when was the first time that we all started kind of hearing about inequality? It was really like the Occupy movement, right? So it was like 2010. I mean, at that time, I mean, inequality that the one percent and the ninety-nine percent, I mean, that was a pretty marginal conversation. Today you have centrist leaders acknowledging, talking about inequality. I think the rub is how do you fix it? And I think that's where where maybe you're not getting enough attention because politicians and and the elite that are up at Davos, they don't really want to talk about the real solutions. They want to do it through philanthropy. Right. And so do you think that the president still has a lock on the same working class voters that he did um, in 2016? I think that this shutdown in particular started to shake that grip that you had people in communities that supported Donald Trump who saw the economic chaos that ensued from a very radical political posturing and started to question if he really had their best interests in mind. I think we've heard from farmers who have questioned whether his tactics really got them what he said he was going to get them. And now they're hurting because of his trade policies. Like, I think that that coalition, I hope that that coalition is starting to fall apart, but it, but it really won't mean anything if Democrats can't figure out how to authentically talk about their issues. I think some of them are getting it right. And I think it just goes back to the whole question that you asked in the beginning is like centrism and triangulation and quintonianism came from a very different political time when our issues were less urgent. And now the chickens have come home to roost. And so the question is, is can some of these democratic leaders shift, but in an authentic way, not in a fake way. It's not enough to just like talk about the middle class, right? Are you actually going to talk about practical policies that are going to get us there? Because I think people want to hear that because they've seen how dangerous rhetoric alone is. So, I mean, that's, I mean, so I don't know for a fact, but that's my hope right, is that people are starting to see that rhetoric alone doesn't get you to where you want to go. So what are the, some of the things that you're working on or thinking about here in Colorado that you're hopeful for, not just in this state, but that can perhaps be exported to other states? So, I mean, it's an exciting time. I mean, as you talked about earlier, um, progressives control you know, three lovers of state government here. And I think it's an opportunity for us to actually pass the kinds of policies that we've been talking about for a long time. So so for, for us, I think it's in a couple categories. So one, we've been really focused working with groups like yours on creating universal portable benefits, uh, things like retirement security, paid family leave, access to health care. These should be universal, portable programs that you have access to regardless of who your employer is, especially at a time when the labor market is fragmenting and people are working two to three jobs and are going to have multiple jobs over the course of a career, right? We think there are very practical things that the state can do to implement these programs. There are bills on all of these moving through the legislature. We're supporting all of them. We think that's really fundamental to not just dealing with economic insecurity, but future-proofing the economy, right? How do we, how do we plan? Plan for the interruptions that we know are going to happen in in the labor market. So that's 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 one big group. The second is consumer protection because um, if anything is clear uh, to me, for instance, like student debt, one point five trillion dollars of student debt being held by eighty million people in this country. Um, um, 
you know, there's a whole predatory economy that is developed over managing those student loans and servicing those student loans. You know, on the ballot this cycle, we got rid of payday loans. So we really part of part of the problem with our economy is not just inequality, but the bottom feeders who are taking advantage of and exploiting people who are economically fragile. So consumer protection is a really important priority for us. And then just to come back to the, the probably the most important issue is that our Financial rules in this state, because of Tabor, Gallagher, all of these really esoteric conversations that we only have in Colorado, right, have frozen this state in time in the 1990s. And yet we're this totally different state today in 2018. Um, and that's why we have these crazy facts and figures like we're 42nd in the nation for education funding. Uh, we don't have money for our roads. Um, all of these issues are a symptom of the fact that we have these really rigid fiscal policies. And so, you know, we're we're playing a role both behind the scenes and in the public conversation to try to figure out how do we get adequate, sustainable and progressive revenue to fund our needs so that we can make sure that everybody in the state is prospering. To pick up on these communistic themes that you're touching upon in there. I'm, <laughs> you, I'm uh, trying to you, save capitalism, Jake. <laughs> There's been this, this idea uh, bantied about uh, on, on social media and elsewhere um, that it's a question, a, a question of whether billionaires should even exist in, in this economy. Do you have some, do you have some deep thoughts uh, on this topic? I don't know if my thoughts are too deep. I mean, I think it's really interesting that people are asking this question. And I think there's this whole like interesting conversation about what are the bugs and features of American style capitalism, right? And so I think, you know, should should a, should anybody in America have that much wealth? Should and and it's not even just a question of wealth. Should anybody in America accumulate that kind of power? And so I don't want to weigh in on whether or not we should have billionaires or not. But I, I think to have billion, I think for me, it's less a concern of having billionaires as having so many people living in this economically fragile poverty. So I think the right question is, is should, should we have billionaires at a time when we have so many who are not feeling uh, a stake in our, in our society's wealth? So I think like that to me is the bigger issue. And I think that this becomes a conversation about capitalism. And it's like, you know, American style capitalism is not the only type of capitalism out there. And if you look across the Atlantic and you look at the social democracies of Europe, they've got problems, but they don't have a lot of the problems that we have, right? And so I think they've got forms of capitalism out there that have features that moderate some of the in inequities that we're seeing. And so it's not a question of should we have billionaires, it's should we have billionaires while at the same time we have so many people who are poor. What else you want to talk about? I mean, I think we we covered the gambit today. It's gamut. Gamut. Gam yeah, gambit. A gambit is. Yeah, like gambit what you're is like right a, now. You're at, right. At a, yeah, yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, I really appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> we'll be sure to include that. <clears throat> All right, um, Scott Wasserman. It's been great speaking with you. What are you doing this weekend, Scott Wasserman? I'm going to run the Rugrats around town because I operate a shuttling service for an uh -huh. 8-year-old and 11-year-old uh -huh. on the weekends. Uh, but I think I'm going to I'm gonna go skiing, hopefully on Sunday. I'm going to sit in traffic because we don't have enough money to uh, have a good roads. So I'm going to sit in traffic. I'm going to ski for like a couple hours, and then I'm going to get back in the car. I'm going to drive back home. How about you? I'm gonna also do some rugrat shuttling uh, minus the uh, minus the skiing. I'm trying to think of a way 
to, to make Colorado seem as unappealing as possible so that those listening from outside of Colorado do, don't decide to come live here yeah. because the traffic is getting... And the weather's horrible. Yeah, it's, t- it's wanna, terrible. You don't want to come here. Yeah, constant stench of legal weed in the air. I can't, you know... It's terrible. I know. All right, well, thanks again. Have a good weekend. Thanks a lot, Jake. It was great to be here. There it is, our first News with Friends edition with Scott Wasserman. Thanks to Scott for coming on. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we really could use some comments, some ratings, preferably some positive ones. So please do that if you are so inclined. I would super appreciate it. We're also cooking up some great stuff for you. I'll be in DC next week to do at least one interview. So I'm looking forward to getting that in the can. As always, any feedback, you can reach us at our website, woodenteethshow.com. Until next time.